Alicia Rye writes award-winning, emotionally complex contemporary romance novels and is frequently sought as a speaker on a range of topics covering romance and media. She is the first author to have an indie published book appear on Washington Post's annual best books list. Her books have also been featured on the Indie Next and Library Reads lists and been named Best Books of the Year by NPR, New York Public Library, Vulture, Reader's Digest, Entertainment Weekly, Amazon, Kirkus, Bustle, O, The Oprah Magazine, and Cosmopolitan Magazine. When she's not writing, Alicia is traveling and tweeting. Alicia is the author of lots of books, including her latest novel in her modern love series, First Comes Like which is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Alicia. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And as one of the top author influencers on social media, we have a lot of fun and unique topics to cover with you today. But first, just tell us a little bit about First Comes Like. Sure. So First Comes Like is about this influencer, Gia. She's been like a beauty vlogger for many years, sort of came up during the rise of YouTube and is now trying to find her way. But she starts getting these flirty messages from this rather famous Bollywood actor. She's in America, he's in India, and so she's been flirting back, and she sort of falls in like with him, and when she finds out that he's coming to America, he's being a little bit cagey about meeting up for some reason, she just tracks him down and wants to meet up with him, and the problem is he has no idea who she is, so somebody else has been using his account to send her messages. But of course, shenanigans sort of ensue from there, and you know, they, they make their way to a happy ending. Love it. Yes. The release date for First Comes Like was timed around Valentine's Day, which makes sense for romance. But it also has a little bit of history for you. Recently, a year ago, you met a guy for coffee, which prompted this tweet. Yesterday, I met a guy for coffee and he asked what I'd like to drink and went and fetched the order. He came back with two cake pops and I was like, oh, that's cute. And then he ate them both in front of me. So clearly a monster, right? Your tweet went viral, which I thought was just hysterical. I thought it was so funny and just right because he set up the expectation. There's two cake pops. He went and got the thing. Clearly a monster. It's the only thing you can come up with. He set up the expectation, then he failed to meet it. I wouldn't have let it go personally. But besides, a lot of people had a take similar to ours, which was that's hysterical and you're so right. But there were other responses as well and some of them not so kind. He wrote later that I don't think you can be a woman of color on the internet and not deal with online harassment. And if you add in being a visible romance author, there's another layer of terrible to deal with. This backlash, however, it hit like a tsunami. So we'd love to hear more about that. So it was one of those things where I was out on the state. It was the day before Valentine's Day. And it was, we just went to Starbucks. It was the first day we had met before. Exactly what happened happened. And it was, it's such like a bad day that you focus on the inconsequential. And you're like, oh, this sums up the whole day. I went home, I tweeted it. I thought a hundred people would laugh at it. We all go on with our lives. And then the next day I get a call from Huffington Post and they said, we'd like to do a story on this. Would you like to comment further? And I said, comment further on my tweet about cake pop, thinking surely they'll understand how ridiculous this sounds. They're like, yeah. And so they ran it and then all of a sudden media outlets started picking it up. So the Daily Mail, Daily Mail did a profile about me. It went to Fox News, it went to BuzzFeed, and then it went to the morning TV shows. So The View, The Talk, Michael Strahan weighed in on my love life in like a three minute segment. I was like, don't you guys have anything else to talk about right now? I guess not. I guess you did. And that was the thing where I was like, nothing really goes viral like this. And I was like, oh, okay. I see. Something so silly can go viral. And so it was amusing. And then it sort of hit this 
corner of the internet that was very angry, very mad. And, and I became sort of their scapegoat of the week. And so there were like some very right wing gentlemen who were angry about it and did these whole podcasts about it, YouTube videos. And, you know, they directed everybody at me. And so I had to shut down sort of my social media for like a couple of weeks until it slowed down. And I handed my passwords over to a friend because I was just like, I can't even look at it. It's so disgusting. And so it was both educational. <laughs> And ridiculous and funny and also kind of terrible. And it is just not fun to be visible in a way that you've been so wildly out of control that you don't know what the person on the other end is going to do and you don't know who right. people are. So it was a little terrifying. I do not recommend that kind of viral. Yeah. I thought that tweet was so funny. Your take was funny and real. That wasn't even controversial. I didn't realize this was in debate. Like I shouldn't have posted it a question as like a question at the end, maybe. So this February 16th book comes out. And funny enough, a couple of days after my kickpop thing, I was so frustrated. And I was like, I'm never dating again. Because I already been talking to this guy. I was like, fine, I'll send him a message, whatever. You want to go meet up somewhere? I mean, he's like, oh, he's going to pick a bar or something. I was like, I have certain go-to bars that I used to go to on my first date. So I was like, okay, which bar should I go to? And he's like, let's go bowling. I haven't gone bowling in a while. I was like, oh, that's cute. Okay, fine. And so last February 16th, I went bowling with this guy. We're still together. Very happy. So you can, you never know when you're going to hit gold. (laughs) So this leads perfectly into my next question now that we're talking about sort of your social media. So after hashtag cake, You couldn't exactly leave the internet. I mean, I know you turned your passwords over, you said, but social media is a lifeblood for authors and it's how you find readers. It's how you connect. And you genuinely do seem to love it. Your TikTok videos are hilarious. You created this quarantine cuisine videos on YouTube that I love. I said to Corinne, I mean, I can honestly say of all the authors we've spoken to or that I follow that your social media is next level, but it's got to be hard to put Put yourself out there. And as you've experienced personally, it's sometimes not so easy because people think that you're not really a person, right? There's this image and they can speak to you or about you in ways as if you don't really have feelings. How do you balance it all? I mean, how do you come up with these fresh new ways to present yourself, but also keep the line so that you don't have these trolls or expose too much? Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on the format. So TikTok, I found for me, at least it's easier to control who's commenting on your videos and you can go and delete the comments Instagram as well a lot harder on Twitter like anyone can just say anything they want to and you can mute them but the comments still there like everyone else can see it and engage with it and bring it up again so it's a very fine balancing act and I think for me what I've learned is that I can't let it sort of dictate my mental health or my emotional state too much. So when I see something and I get heated, I sort of take that back and be like, am I going to engage in this? And sometimes I am because I'm, I'm annoyed enough that I do or have the mental capacity to do it. And sometimes I just don't anymore. Like I just take a step back and I'm like, I'm not going to feed this. And so I delete it, I mute it, I get it out of my sight. I think that is sort of the challenge in today's age is that when you are on the internet a lot, when you grow up sort of on the internet, I mean, I think a lot of us have grown knowing that everything we put out there could be visible to anybody. And especially when we find out how visible you can be, it is very much a priority for me to make sure that I am having fun. And if I'm not having fun, 
I stopped having fun on Twitter for a while, so I took a break from it. This really is a case where if you're not enjoying it, no one else is going to enjoy it either. As long as I'm having fun, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm trying to just moderate it as best I can. And then also I have outside friends. <laughs> but I think that's important when you have a very online world, to also have a very offline world. And I didn't really have that balance before, and I have it now, so that's good. By the way, that is what my 10th grade health teacher told me about relationships. His best advice about relationships was that there's going to be good times, there's going to be bad times. As long as you're baseline having fun, you like each other, you're getting along, then you got to let the rest go because otherwise you're just not engaged and then you don't have good or bad and that's not worth it. And I think that's what sort of this pandemic taught me too. I mean, one of the weird things about getting to know someone during a pandemic, possibly one of the most stressful times of any of our lives. Yes is that you have to sort of find the small pocket of happiness, right? Small bubbles of happiness. You sort of define those and embrace those real tightly because there's so much other stuff going on. So I've been trying to do that over the past year and not just in a relationship, but like in anything where I'm like, oh, well, I got up today and I showered. So that's pretty good. Oh, we did this thing and not get too bogged down by all the terrible things that are going on. Which is a good segue into our next question. On Pop Fiction Women, our tagline is we're complicated. Sometimes people don't know what that means. But you said something in an interview that really captures what we're trying to do here. You said, my readers know that when they open one of my books, they'll get heroes and heroines who may be flawed, but won't be punished or humiliated for those flaws. My characters make a space for each other to navigate a world that may not have ready spaces for them. And Gia, your heroine in First Comes Like, is described using some adjectives that Kate and I have heard before many times, like too much and a lot. So we'd love to hear more about your development of Gia who she is, what inspired her, or what challenges you faced when you were writing her. So I come from a pretty big family. I'm one of four siblings, and I'm like the proper middle. So I was sort of the ham in the family growing up. And that's what I heard all the time. was like, oh my God, you're so much. You're so much. And then when my siblings are deadbeat, like they're 21 years old. And so what I heard from them, they're like, you're really extra. Oh my God. So it's evolved over the years, the language. And they mean it with affection. And of course, she also hears it with affection. But sometimes when you hear that, so much. It feels like you are too big for the space that you've been put in. And that's not really true. I think space expands. So nobody's too big for it. Nobody's too much for anything. I think the issue sometimes is when people try to smush you down to fit into what they think you should be. And that could be in like putting you in a box. Like you're this. Like, oh, there's two kinds of girls, right? This or this. And it's like, no, that's crazy. Nobody ever says there's two kinds of guys. That's not something that happens. So it is this idea, like, let's turn you into one flat thing so we can understand you and nobody's a flat thing we're all too much in one way or another and so whether you're sort of the too much person of your family or, or of your workplace or whatever you know I wanted to sort of have a heroine who everybody called that and is just a normal human being trying to navigate life just like the rest of us that is exactly what we celebrate on here so we loved her and I loved that explanation so the premise of first comes like is one of my favorites in pop fiction the foment turned romance. I don't know. There's just something so appealing about it because there's this built-in tension, the will they or won't they, the ruse turning to the real thing. I'm thinking most recently of the wildly popular Shondaland series Bridgerton on Netflix, which we just covered, where we see a very popular man in a fomance with this ambitious 
woman. So first, I'd love to know what made you want to write about a fomance. And then given Bridgerton's hot success, whether you think that's going to open doors for more romance novels to be adapted, which we'd love to see. I would, yeah. So I love the word fomance. I can't stop saying it, but that's sort of my catnip. I love it. I love the idea that you take this two oddballs and you put them together and they have to pretend in public and then they slowly fall in love, which is my favorite trope. I could write it 10 million times and not get sick of it or read it 10 million times and not get sick of it. But it's just such a charming thing, isn't it? There's so few reasons for grown adults to have to be forced together in contemporary society. Like if you don't want to be around someone, you don't have to be around them. And that, that's just how it is. So somebody making a pact with someone else being like, we're going to force each other to be in each other's company and see what happens, you know, like just to fool someone and then, oops, they fall in love. That's just so charming. And yeah, I do hope Bridgerton's success. I love, of course, the romance in that show as well in the book. I do hope the success opens up more doors for romance to be made into television. Like my little sister who, you know, like I said, is 21. She has never shown any interest in romance novels I think probably because she was around them all the time with me but no interest in reading them no interest in you know watching rom-coms or anything like that and she devoured Bridgerton and the minute over she was it was over she's like what do I have what else can I watch and I was like oh so many books for you she's like no no no. what can I watch I'm not reading books she's like a pre-med she doesn't have time to read books I'm like well we can uh, watch Outlander that's kind of like also a period romance and she's like oh okay she binged the whole thing in like a weekend you know She's like, what else? What else? And I was like, they're working on it. <laughs> but I'm sure there's a whole new audience of people who have never been introduced to the genre, who didn't know that there were so many treasures in it coming in now. And, and hopefully they're reading the books too. And if there's enough support, maybe we can start seeing some of these great titles made into movies and TV shows as well. Yeah, Julia Quinn's backlist is on the New York Times bestseller list. So I think they're reading the books too, yeah. which is great for the authors. But also, yeah, I'd love to see the modern romance too. I mean, even Outlander and Bridgerton. I mean, those are the historical romance. So there's a place for your modern romance books too, I hope. Yeah. And there's a huge market for it. That is one of the great things about romance is that you're sort of guaranteed a happy, hopeful ending. And we don't have a lot of that. Like my boyfriend's always trying to get me to watch Black Mirror. And I say, is it a happy ending? And he's like, well, this episode does it. And I was like, no. Too real. There's like three episodes of Black Mirror I can watch right now, you know, falling apart. So I need sort of that right now. I mean, there's time and place for everything else. So I hope it evolves and they adapt more. I think that is very true that the time right now, we all need a little bit of that. You said something that really, really blew my mind because I am not a happy ending person normally. I can see happy endings in different ways. So first comes like is a sweet romance that's very upbeat as we've been talking about. And you said with respect to writing romance that happiness is subversive. And I'm like, okay, I want to hear this. He said, it's harder to write a happy ending than a tragic one because that happiness is not the baseline in the world. It's the thing you get in spite of everything and everyone that wants to squish you down. As we were just talking about, we all could use a little bit more of that, but I love that you're saying that's subversive and that it's not like a given. A lot of people feel like the world can be against them. And when happiness comes, you're like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> this was unexpected. Yeah. I have a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. So I think for me, I'm always thinking about the worst case scenario. And so I've had to sort of train myself like, okay, well, this terrible thing could happen, but also this good thing could be happened. I've gotten into the habit of being like, okay, well, it could be terrible. It could be good. It could be good. But when you live your whole life thinking like, it's going to be terrible. 
horrible. Let me just imagine all the terrible things that can happen when you do get something happy. Like you said, you're just surprised by it. You're like, oh, this isn't so bad. It is possible and it's out there, but it does sometimes feel like the baseline is not happy and the baseline is not good things. And sometimes that's true. Like you go through patches of life where it's hard and, you know, you don't get the happiness that you think you're going to get or that you feel like you should get. So it is harder to write something where everything triumphs for this person. They get what they want because so often you're told that that's not what you're going to get. So I do think sometimes twisting it at the end and giving them that, that is sort of an act of subversion. And I think it's great to see something like that. When you see it, you can visualize it for yourself and internalize it. You can say, well, maybe it won't be that terrible thing. Maybe it will be a good thing. And writing it and having it feel earned is not easy either. You're not just like, oh, everything works out at the end. You have to lead us there. And I could see that being more complicated. So we have to take a little turn here because I realize that you're a lawyer and you're talking to two lawyers. So we've talked on this podcast strangely, with a lot of lawyers turned authors. We didn't know you were one, actually, until started doing a little digging. And a lot of them fall into different categories. You're what we call a dual tracker, where you somehow manage to keep your day job while also writing and pursuing your creative passions. So I don't know if you're still practicing, but either way, you certainly are a dual tracker for us. So we'd love to hear how you went from being an attorney to also writing romance novels? And do you intentionally keep your toes in both pools? I do. I actually started writing romance when I was in law school. Like It was such a needed escape at the time because it was somehow simultaneously the best three years and the worst three years of my life. I don't know how that happened, but that's how it was. And there are like a shocking amount of lawyers who are romance authors. We like to say that you can't throw a rock in romance landia without hitting a lawyer. <laughs> so yeah, I like I said, I think I just two parts of my brain. I think it exercises both parts. And that's what I like. I like having something a little bit more creative. And I like having something a little bit more methodical and analytical. And it's a good exercise. Left brain, right brain, go back and forth. But I love the writing aspects of law school. And I think that's what a lot of authors share. Like we really enjoyed that part of it. And so analyzing and the writing, that was my favorite part of being a lawyer. And it's very easy to transfer that over to writing fiction. So I'm not surprised that in general, there's a lot of authors who are lawyers, but there are specifically a lot of romance. I was just going to say, it's because you need the happy ending because you said earlier you have anxiety. We go around with a lot of anxiety. So I think we need something a little more creative and fun to get out of it. And I think that's how a lot of lawyers start writing romance. I know for me, being a lawyer was like a long-term goal that I worked towards for a very long time in my life and I worked very hard at. It did not give me a happy ending. I remember one of my law professors telling me the only profession where they congratulate you when you get into to it and out of it is law. I'm still trying so to get yeah. out of it. So I'll let you know. You guys can yeah. congratulate we me. We will. We will. Yes. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your characters in First Comes Like and just in general too. Gia and her best friends and her roommates, they have traditionally male qualities and Dev is a reluctant but very dedicated caregiver to his niece and he displays empathy in spades. Those qualities are subversive in themselves. They go against our expectations. And I understand that that's really important to you, not just for gender, but for representation of minorities and different genders and sexuality, and that this is a commitment of yours. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think people are very complicated and just saying like, well, he's a guy, so he does this. That erases so many things. And I think he does a disservice, not just to women, but also to men. I think that sort of toxic masculinity, like, you know, men aren't caregivers, men can't be nurturing, but that is a 
disservice to men. That's not the expectation they should be held to. That's not the standard they should be held to. And there are a lot of men who are nurturing and caregivers, and it's not fair that they're not called manly just because of that. So I do think that that's important for me to show that in the real world, gender roles don't always apply across the spectrum to everybody or anything. That's just part of it. Like, you know, I'm trying to just write humans as they appear in the real world because I do think that people don't realize that contemporary romance includes a certain degree of world building in that you don't want somebody to put the book down and say like this isn't real this isn't true to life so I just try to structure it as the world as I see it and that's sort of the way that I see the world and it seems to resonate with readers and so hopefully it's it's the way a lot of people see the world. You make it look really easy (laughs) and it's not that easy but you're saying you draw on real life experiences so it makes it more relatable whether you know that person or not. I'm a hardcore people watcher. Like I watch people all the time. I'm even harder now with the pandemic, but that was sort of my hobby. I'd go to a coffee shop and write and see what's going on. I read a lot. I talk to a lot of people. And so when I write the characters, I try to make them just feel as real as possible. Nobody is so out of control, wild in terms of personality or traits that they're not somebody that I've met or like a conglomeration of people that I've met or talked to or whatever. So I do think that it's just really important to me to sort of reflect that. Like we sort of get fed a canon of what the world looks like through these books. If you're not exposed to it, that's how you sort of see the world through media. And so if our media isn't realistic, people don't really sometimes get a realistic view of the world. Do you want to switch to just a little bit about your writing process too? You mentioned sitting in a coffee shop. So I was going to ask, where do you write? How do you write? Do you have any sort of rituals? I might've changed due to COVID. And when you were working, how did you manage to practice law and find the time to write your romance novels? Well, it was really hard when I was at a firm. A lot easier when I left because in other jobs, you can get more time and it's a more healthy work-life balance. But pre-pandemic, I mean, I worked exclusively from home, but I never really was home, I would go to co-working spaces or I'd go to coffee shops all over sort of town. And that was how I saw any city I lived in. I've moved around quite a bit. I'm in LA now, but I was in DC before and that's how I got to know the city. And that for me really was sort of fuel for my writing. I'm kind of a people watcher. You know, I draw on different things and different experiences. And since the pandemic, it's been hard to write. Like just sitting in your house is difficult. So I, I think I'm just going to have to learn to adapt to this new reality of working in four walls, but it's not my preference. And what about being in love or in a relationship. Taylor Swift once said she was happy she would never write another of one of her songs again. Does that affect your writing? It's not really aspirational in the same way. So my best friend and I have this conversation a lot because she's very much of the mind that if you're single, you're more driven. And she's very happy now in her relationship. But even sometimes she's like, man, if I was single, I'd be, I'd be able to get so much more done. And I was like, mm, I don't know if that's true. Because I do feel like a happy relationship is kind of like a base, something you can return to, even if you're out in the world doing a lot of stuff. You can always have something secure to return to, and it does help. And I have to say, like, that is true. Like, I think this is one of the first relationships where I felt, like, secure. I was like, okay, I'm, like, firmly attached to this person. He's not going anywhere. So it's actually quite easy to come into my room and close the door and write and then go out and play video games with him or, like, you know, have dinner with him or something like that. And he's also working from home right now. And I said to him, I don't know what I'm going to do when I don't have a co-worker anymore. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Like, you can't return to an office. And he's like, well, I have to go in at some point. Like, no. So am I going to go have, like, coffee with at 3 p.m.? Like, I'm not going <laughs> to have anyone to yeah. do that with. It's actually been great. I definitely feel like there was a point where, you know, at the end of every deadline and the weeks rushing up to it, I would get so anxious about everything because I'd be under a lot of stress and pressure. I have my friends to talk to about it, but it's not quite the same as just feeling like you have something to fall back on kind of emotionally. It's 
surprisingly help. And I always was kind of like, if I'm happy, I'm not going to write as well. I'm not going to be as creative. But I found the opposite is actually true. Like if I'm happy and I feel secure, I feel like I just do everything a little bit better because I'm not worried about these other things. I'm 100% with you there. I was just thinking more of the romance aspect of it, but I definitely felt that way. I mean, I think I became a lawyer because I wanted security and I wanted those things. And then I was a lawyer and I didn't feel so great about it. I got married and I became more ambitious than ever. And that's when I started taking risks in my career, in my work, in my writing. So I am with you there. I feel that kind of security is a great touchstone. So there's a scene in First Comes Life where they're playing Scrabble and he kind of lets her win because she's so competitive. And that's actually one of our fourth dates or fifth date or something. We were playing Scrabble and it's almost the exact same thing. And I just thought when it happened, I was, I'm very competitive. Like I do not like to lose because I was like, I can't lose at Scrabble. I'm a writer. Like that's not going to happen. And so I was literally sitting there for half an hour with my last three tiles. And I'm like, I'm going to make this work. Like I'm going to make this work. So finally he that and when he did that I was like wow that is such a like subtle but romance hero quality like when I sort of like filed it away in my brain there's not a lot in my books that I really rip from my own life like that so that was a little thing I put in there because I was just like this is like I think one of the things that I never thought I would look for in a guy like it's not someone oh yeah like he indulges you when you're not gonna stop playing the Scrabble game but I was like that is actually extremely romantic and so I do think that there is something to be said with being in a relationship and finding sort of like those little itty bitty tidbits and I do think that it makes writing the romance a little bit easier because you have all these little things that you don't even think about when you're not in a relationship that you're missing or that you think maybe seek for in someone. So we have a very strange but strong side interest on this podcast in astrology. As lawyers and writers, we've come across very distinct reactions to these concepts of fate versus free will. In our lawyer circles, as you can imagine, lots of rejection of this idea that our futures could be written in the stars and lawyers are holding on to the fact that they have complete control of everything. Whereas the writers, obviously, that we speak to often have a different view on more in touch with their intuitive side, magic, mysticism, these kind of concepts. So we always ask our authors what their sign is and whether they relate to it. But I snooped and I know you're a Gemini, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because your duality is just evident in your life and in talking to you. So this is perfect. But I will ask you anyway, if you feel you relate to being a Gemini and whether astrology ever creeps into maybe your writing or your character development. Yeah, I actually believe pretty strongly in astrology. My uncle is an astrologist, so my mom consults him on everything she does. And that's pretty common in, in South Asian families, you know, for her generation. And so I sort of raised, like my mom had my birth chart. So I was raised pretty much in it. I do very much relate to being a Gemini. I'm a Gemini and I'm a Taurus rising and I relate to both of those in a lot of ways. And my siblings are just by chance all Capricorns, all three of them. And they are all very much Capricorns. And sometimes I'm like, I'm the only one who could possibly get along with all of you. (laughs) And they're all three very different, but in specific ways, extremely similar. So in my family, I feel like we do have sort of test cases, 100% believe in it. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, there's certain qualities that I I have because I was born. (laughs) 
time. And, yeah. and my yeah. best friend's a cancer and she's very much a cancer. You know? uh, so, you're speaking our signs. My yeah. husband is a Gemini. Kate's son is a Gemini. Both of our mothers are cancers. So, But when you do that, when you say like to your friend, like, oh, she's so a cancer. Like I do that to people when I meet them. I'm like, oh my God, you are so a whatever. And they think you're insulting them somehow. And I'm just like, no, it's not an insult. They think I'm like labeling no, them. No, not at all. And my best friend, like she had a baby and he's a cancer now. And I was like, well, you'll see. Like, it's not a bad thing. Like we've been best friends since college. And she used to be a model. And when someone doesn't fit their signs, because we all obviously know that there are other signs like rising moon, I'm like, mm, it must be your rising sign is something different. And they're like, my what? I know. I'm sign? like, I need a birth chart. There's got to be some sort of aberration here. So my boyfriend's a Sagittarius and he doesn't believe in any of this. And I was like, that's so Sagittarius. But occasionally I see it come out sometimes where I'm like, I'm going to fight them. And he's like, don't do that. But there are certain signs that I feel like I have trouble getting along with. And I think it's because our personalities oh. are sort of set in the stars a little bit. Absolutely. I have a thing for Aries. Clearly, I've dated Aries, <laughs> Corinth and Aries. I think there are signs that you get along with or don't. I have so many cancers in my life. Sometimes we gravitate towards certain things. But my siblings, I was like, you should be glad I'm this easygoing. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love uh, Capricorn, but... Yeah, I do find it to be very relational, right? Certain elements are just going to, they'll extinguish me or they'll set me too much of a flame. And so it has to be how you relate to one another. And I am definitely flighty sometimes. I'm very indecisive. And I recognize that there's parts of me that are, you know, ideal or anything like that. Unless yeah. you're a Leo like me, and then you just think there are no negative traits. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with the sign I am. It does represent me, I think, the duality, like you said. And I think there is a reason that this has been studied for so many centuries. You've got something to it. Yes. Corinne is our tracker of the signs of the creators that we've talked about on the podcast because we wanted to see if there was more of one sign that was maybe more creative than the other, but we've got Oh, some no. It's Sagittarius. It's Sagittarius yeah. by far. But also, I don't know if you're familiar with the qualities of the signs, like mutable, cardinal, and fixed signs. Oh, I'm not as familiar with that. No. Okay. Mutable is, you're mutable. Gemini is mutable. So uh -huh. is Sagittarius. And those are by far the most successful Creative. creators. Yeah. So my boyfriend also streams on Twitch. He has an office job as well, but he, that's not where he goes into the office. But he is very creative as well. So yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. He's a bit yes. of a writer as well. So, ah, interesting. For our last question, we always ask, what are you loving right now? Any books, shows, people that you're down a rabbit hole with and that you want our listeners to know about? We'd love to hear. I'm very obsessed with WandaVision right now. I am dying every week for every new episode. And I'm like pausing it frame by frame. To analyze I saw that. You know, and I liked Marvel movies, but this is a masterclass in writing and everything. They have done such a good job at hiding things in it. It's like a little mini movie in every week. And so I'm very interested in that. I love hearing people's conspiracy theories about it and stuff. So that's sort of my new hobby. I also just read, or just came out, I read it a while ago, but this book is called Big it is excellent. It's sort of like an urban fantasy. It's a romance, but it's an urban fantasy. And it is sort of an alternate universe where there's like shapeshifters and stuff. It's sort of dealing with the same things that we're dealing with in terms of integrating societies and figuring things out. I really enjoyed that. I've been doing a lot of reality shows too, like 90 Day Fiance. And Someone just told me about this 90 Day Fiance. Is it good? <laughs> 
you know what it is there's so many shows of it like they have four or five spin-offs of it like I was never a big reality show fan I never really enjoyed them but I started watching this in quarantine and married at first sight too and I find mm-hmm. it fascinating like yeah. it is uh, and I know they're edited you know heavily to like make people in sort of characters but something about it I've been watching it like I'm an anthropologist like well this is how you get your fix because you yeah. can't go to the coffee shop so you have to watch this I've just been trying to keep myself sane and entertained and also get some sort of inspiration from somewhere. Yeah. Are you working on another book right now? I am actually. Well, it'll be announced this week. I'm working on a young adult novel and that'll be out next year. So I'm excited about that. Is that your first YA? It's my first YA. Yeah, my debut YA. Right now, the tentative title is While You Were Dreaming. And it's sort of like a While You Were Sleeping, Young oh. Adult reboot. Oh. Yeah, so it'll be about a girl that. who saves her crush while she's in costume. She's attending like a comic book thing and it goes viral. And she's trying to sort of keep her identity hidden. That is awesome. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, very yeah. excited about it. And that'll be out in 2022? Early 2022, I believe. Yeah. You also have to tell all our listeners where they can find you, and you have lots of things. So they can find me on Twitter at my name, Alicia Rye, or you can find me, and it's so annoying. I have different handles on everything. You can find me on Instagram at Alicia Rye Wright, and then on TikTok at The Real Alicia Rye. Very annoyed at all the people who took my name before. Yes. (laughs) Well, this was so great. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us and being so open and fun to chat with. Yeah, this was such a delight. really enjoyed this and first comes like is awesome we loved it and it is out now so everyone should go read it and you'll get the happy ending that we all need yes (laughs) 